This is Office Hours, the show for sharing experiences and stories in security, risk management, compliance, and audit. Brought to you by Galvanize. Now, here's your host, Dan Zitting. Okay. Welcome back to Office Hours, everybody. As always, I'm Dan Zitting. Back after a short summer break and... uh, what a way to come back. I'm really excited to have a very special guest today. Longtime audit executive and and friend of Galvanize, Mr. Dan Clark. Hey, Dan, how are you today? I'm great, Dan. How about yourself? Fantastic. Thank you. Really looking forward to the chat today. But before we get started, um, I'd love if you could just give a little bit of background on your career and, and where you've focused and then the kinds of things you're working on today. That'd be great. Thank you. I uh, actually have had a very interesting career. I started in in Citigroup, which is the global conglomerate. And I started in in actually sales, which was interesting. And I, I liked sales for a long time. And then I got into credit risk management. And from credit risk management, I got into what was called credit risk review, which a lot of our audience will understand what that is. It's a function similar to audit that goes out and looks at businesses uh, from a business perspective rather than an audit perspective. And while I was in that function, we actually merged with audit and became audit and risk review. So we learned the best sides of both worlds. We learned how to be tediously mundane in finding out controls have to work like auditors do. And we became very organized and executive in our thinking around strategy and business management and so it really was a wonderful melding of two different worlds, and it, it cost a lot, but we finally got there. And that was kind of the onset of my understanding of what risk-based auditing was all about and how I became an auditor, because having been in business risk review, uh, the chief auditor executive of one of our divisions asked me if I would like to go to work for audit. After about a week or two of saying absolutely not, he convinced me. <laughs> I moved to Chicago, and since then I have been in audit. And what he so told me- the dark me, side you went. <laughs> I did go to the dark side. But he said there was a, a glimmer of hope, Dan. He said, I want you to come into audit because we need to be risk-based like business risk review. So I said, okay, I have no problem with that. And so that's what I've done. And I've always been a risk-based auditor. And once I left Citigroup, I was chief auditor for USAA for a period of time for Sterling Bank, went back to GE Capital for a couple of years for a global perspective again, which I really enjoy. And then uh, finished my corporate career at Washington Trust as the chief audit executive, where we implemented risk-based auditing 2.0. And now I'm a consultant working with several people on auditing and risk management, uh, helping people understand uh, the myriad of risk out there and how we can approach it from an audit perspective or risk management perspective. Really enjoy it. It seems like a natural fit for me from my corporate days and uh, having a good time doing it. Outstanding. So great. Quite a career in uh, primarily in financial services, but always around this this idea of risk, and of course, um, a great tenure in in internal audit, which is what we're going to primarily talk about today. Is directionally where we're going in internal audit from here. We've had surely the at least the um, you know 
2008 was a wild ride, but it's it's got to be the overall now officially the strangest year of of my career in in conditions we operate in. Um, similar for you, Dan. I mean, have you ever seen a period where risk shifted like it has this year? This has been interesting, mainly because of the residual impact or the periphery impact. Usually when we have a financial crisis, there's a direct impact and there's a little bit of the periphery that's hit. But with this pandemic, the periphery has been what has really been destroyed uh, from a risk management perspective because it's touching upon pieces of organizational structures or process flows that typically don't get touched upon in a crisis. And so it's, it's really, really intriguing to me to see how businesses are reacting to that and what they plan on doing in the future, because this will happen again. Yeah. And it, this will happen again and, and strange things that we don't expect will happen again. And so I, I had some interesting, um, at least I think they're interesting stats. So we have about um, 800 participating organizations here at Galvanize where we've been uh, on a anonymized basis uh, tracking um, work they do in our tools around uh, around that have opted in to, to track how we were doing work around uh, COVID-19. And so at the end of March, out of those 800 organizations, we saw about 225 of them were undertaking kind of a few dozen, you know, a relatively small volume of activities uh, related to risk management around the, the pandemic. So I think, you know, surface level stuff, starting to look at policies on work from home, areas of security, things like that. By the end of April, a month later, that gone from 225 to 275, but the density of what they were looking at had gotten much broader. It went from maybe a dozen kind of activities to, you know, a hundred or more. By the end of May, that 275 went to 315, and here it is now the end of July, and we're at about 400, and it's leveled off at, you know, kind of 400 out of the 800 organizations. And um, I guess my question to you is, Dan, what does that indicate to you that out of 800 organizations, only 400 of them in internal audit are, are undertaking uh, activities directly related to the pandemic? And what should that look like if we can generalize in that way? Well, that's a good question. And for the first part of it, I'm not sure what it tells me. Uh, as I look at it and I see the numbers, you got 400 out of 800 doing something around the pandemic. What it could tell us is that 50% of, of the audience that, is, that was part of the test there uh, or the client base may be focused on regulatory type of auditing that they have to do anyway. And so they just don't have the time to do something around the pandemic. That could, that could be one reason why you're seeing that differentiation. Secondly, I think part of it too is people don't understand what they should be doing or what they could be doing. And they're still reacting to the, oh my God, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna survive, et cetera, et cetera. They may have also gone internal and starting to look at what can I do differently? How can I relate to my business in the new world, et cetera, et cetera. So, there could be a lot of contributing factors to why we're seeing those numbers as they are. Um, I think part of it in my mind is the tradition of audit. Audit is not somebody that jumps out front and says, hey, we're going to go do something. They tend to think it through for a while. And there are some progressives. And I think your first number, the 225, are probably your more progressive clients. They're the ones who are out there, look, we got to react to this. Let's get out. Let's get our hands around it. Let's see what we can do and go for it. 
and, and probably do have more of a mandate truly around emerging risk as opposed to as opposed to 90% of our time is sucked up on socks and regulatory things. Exactly. Exactly. So it doesn't surprise me. The numbers don't surprise me, especially given the history of what auditors are and how they think generally. I would be surprised if it was more than that, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually pleased that you've got 50% of your client base is now looking at what can they do around the pandemic? What would be interesting to me, because I think probably 50% of what they're doing is they're revisiting risk assessments and updating risk assessments and saying, okay, we need to add pandemic to our risk assessment. That's not really work. That's not doing anything modern or unique or getting me prepared for anything new or different. It's just reacting to what has occurred. And I've seen this before, Dan, where you know, a financial crisis occurs and all of a sudden the risk assessments that had nothing to do with the financial crisis prior to the financial crisis is now replete with number of things around that financial crisis cause. And so now the risk assessments are better because they went through a crisis. I think part of the work that people are doing have re- are related to that. And so they're just kind of catching up and trying to put their hands around, how do I represent what this all means in a risk assessment, which I'm not real high on anyway. Uh, As I've I've grown in audit and risk management, I've gone to the understanding that a risk assessment is simply a point in time assessment of something based on somebody's knowledge of that something. And there's value in that, but it's not the value that I would look for. So it's going to be, it would be interesting if you guys could determine what exactly did they do, these 400 people, and what is different than what they did before, if anything. Yeah, I think that brings us well to our, our, our next topic, which is, I find it's for us as, a, as an executive in our business, I find um, we are shifting out of, or have shifted out of response mode to now hey, this is the new world. World has changed. The, the quote-unquote new normal has hit. I think if there's ever a time to, to break from the past and do some redefinition around what is the new normal, um, and especially for a function like internal audit, I think it's now. And it's funny, Dan, you and I did a, a webinar a little while back discussing exactly this. And the number one thing you put at the top of the list when you, you, you gave us five items around breaking from the past. And number one on the top of the list was redefine the three lines of defense. And what did I just see from the IIA, not, not whatever it was a week, two weeks ago, was a, publish, a new published piece on, on redefining the, the three lines of defense. So I'm not sure that was exactly what you had in mind, but maybe you could, let's talk about the new normal and those five ways you you described perhaps breaking from the past and maybe start with your thoughts on redefining the three lines of defense. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I'd like to think I'm a genius and I was the first one out there. <laughs> but some of us had actually been talking about the three lines of defense model being, being passe uh, for the last couple of years. And the reason we did that is because the IIA actually started talking about how we could have more influence as auditors with our clients by becoming trusted advisors. And in my mind, it was an easy link to say that a trusted advisor is not someone who comes in and criticizes you after you've done something. It's somebody who's there side by side, engaged in your success. And that made me go to the three lines of defense in the old version, which was 
independent audit comes in and tells you that your first two lines are working. The new version is more aligned to what I, I believe and, I, and several of my compatriots have believed for a couple years, which is we in audit, many of us have skills that could be contributed to all three lines of defense. And there's nothing wrong with helping people establish processes and then coming back and independently auditing those processes to make sure controls work, which is one of the things I like about some of the software programs that Galvanize has, which is actually helping all three lines of defense because you can all use the same software and share information and house information. So everybody's looking at the same thing. You can look at it differently and you certainly should. People who are managing a process should look at how do I make this an efficient process with the right controls, but not overly controlled. And people from a control perspective want to make sure that the risk are being mitigated by the process. So you can look at the same thing using the same tools, but have a different perspective. That's what I like about the three lines of defense. It actually starting to get us to think that we can contribute and we can contribute positively and add value to all three lines and that we should contribute. And that's a, that's a very positive statement. It didn't go quite far enough. It should actually say you should be engaged fully in all three lines, but it did give us the leeway to jump in there and say, yes, I can be. So I'm really enthused about that. And I think that's oh not, I, I think it's, it's fortuitous that the timing is during the pandemic because this is something that should have happened before. And now the pandemic, I think people are seeing that we have opportunities in audit to change who we are and how we represent ourselves. Expose not only not just the opportunity, I think, for that, but actually the need. Um, exactly. When when crisis happens, we need people who think in a sort of risk based approach fashion. Agree. Um, Agree. Which leads well into item number two that you'd listed in breaking from the past, which was reposition the risk assessment. You just touched on that a little bit earlier, but any further comment on, on your thoughts on how that shifts in the, the new normal of, of internal audit? Yeah, I, you know, about two years ago, I wrote an op-ed piece on the risk assessment where I kind of lambasted the risk assessment. I said it's, it's become something that it's outgrown its purpose, purposefulness, and we think it's kind of the manna from heaven saying this is the end-all, be-all. It's everything for everybody, and it's become a cottage industry. You can go out to any consultant, and, and I'm a consultant, any consultant <laughs> but me, and you'll find that they have a version of a risk assessment that they'll sell you for $100,000, and then they'll help you modify it seven different ways and all this other stuff. And I found that to be really disingenuous. Uh, as an auditor, I found it disingenuous. And I see these organizations spending thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars on everybody completing a risk assessment. In my mind, the value of a risk assessment is a point in time assessment by somebody who has some sense of knowledge of something, tells you this is where trolls that I know of should be, and this is how they might be working because I haven't really tested them. So when you start putting that all together with the inherent problems of the risk assessment, i.e. every risk is measured the same way, everything has predictability measured the same way, you only have a limited version, uh, there's a bunch of inherent problems with risk assessing to begin with. That all being said, if you take a look at the risk assessment, there is a purpose for that. And I, the purpose I see is for an engagement of auditors that at the beginning of an audit, you can see 
what you understand the control structure to actually be looking like by filling out a risk assessment. And the, the greater risk assessments that I've seen, the best ones have been from people who actually have 10, 15 years experience in the business who actually understand the risk of the business. And that risk assessment helps them really understand what they need to audit. Other risk assessments, and this is one of the inherent problems of the risk assessment process, is that they typically give it to the junior auditor because it's a way for the auditor to learn. So they want you to go do the risk assessment. You take last year's risk assessment and you do exactly the same thing. And that doesn't teach anybody anything other than to how to translate one risk assessment to a new format. So there's a lot of problems with that. What I really prefer now is called risk profiling. And risk profiling gets to what is the motivation causes our organizations to manage risk the way they manage it. And it's not to judge how they manage it, Dan, because people can be aggressive in how they manage risk or they can be conservative. But it's why are they doing what they're doing? And once you understand why they're going to do something, you should be able to then align everything they do to that why. And if there's something that's on the outside that where they're a conservative organization, all, all of a sudden they become very liberal, you can question why are you being liberal? You've always been conservative. What made you change your mind? And what are the risks associated with that? Because a conservative nature business is not aware of the risk associated with a liberal conservative. And I don't say that in political sense. I'm saying that in mm -hmm. management, uh, aggressive or uh, reserved. We use any, any adjectives you want. But the conservative type of business, for example, we want to grow our bank organically or our business organically with clients. We want to expand. That's a conservative business approach. A more liberal business approach, I'm going to purchase a lot of companies out there, which I have great returns. I don't know much about their culture, etc. That has a completely different risk profile. Understanding why people do what they do helps us understand how to assess risk. And that's one of the faults of the risk assessment methodologies out there for auditors is it doesn't tell you why anything is done. It only tells you this is the risk, this is how it manifests itself, and these are supposedly the controls that are out there that we can test to make sure the controls are being managed. But that's only 50% of it. The other 50%, which I hope your 50% of your 800 are looking at, is why do people react the way they do to things and why, what is the motivation causes them to, to manage risk the way that they manage it? If we understood that, we would be excellent, excellent auditors. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think you've got a model to help do that. We'll get into here in a little bit, but I think leads into well from there, thinking differently from risk assessment to risk profiling. Now, how do we audit accordingly? And you talked, Dan, a lot about creating and implementing an agile auditing approach. What do you mean by that? And what looks different when an organization has embraced agile auditing? You know, I, I like the easy questions. That's not an easy question. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm still evolving a little bit in, in the agility of audit. And I know there's people out there that are talking about changing audit plans uh, every quarter and that makes them agile. And I'm going to say, no, it doesn't. It just makes you kind of schizophrenic because you change your plan all the time. To me, what I, what I see, and probably a good example that we gave during the webinar, and I really like the example, is if I change my universe and I look at things from a holistic view, 
And, and we look at the stars behind you, you see that that's the universe. A lot of auditors would take each star as an auditable entity. What's wrong with taking the galaxy as an auditable entity or the Milky, you know, the Milky Way is the auditable entity. And, and occasionally I'll look at an individual star in that galaxy because that star is causing some concern. I think agility is the ability to have a mental approach to audit that is outside the box that allows us to be very responsive to the aggregate indicators that we see not to individual indicators that we see. And what I've noticed with a lot of audit teams that I've talked to in the last year or two that are going from traditional to risk-based and then trying to be agile, they really haven't captured what a definition of agile is for them. And I would encourage all of the auditors out there, find a definition that fits for your team and use that. And I'm not the one to tell you what that is because all of us are different, but I have my definition that works for me. But if you're going to be agile, if you really want to be able to react to things quickly or be predictive and provide insight, you have to be able to recognize what indicators tell you. And the indicators that people use or have used in the past have been binary in nature. And they've looked at them as individual indicators rather than aggregate indicators. The minute you can look at indicators in the aggregate, then you become agile because you start reacting to three, four, or five different stimuli instead of one. And to me, that's what makes you an agile audit group is you can see five or six things, put them together and say, oh, instead of going to Hawaii, I need to be in Samoa because that's where all the indicators are telling me something is going to occur. If I only look at one indicator and it's the one that everybody else is looking at, like uh, we'll use unemployment. Unemployment is an indicator that tells me we're going to have problems. Great. But there's other indicators to use to that too. Unemployment tells you X. What are the Y, Z, and Ls that you need to look at to come up with something that's more agile and be able to use your mind to audit rather than just your process to audit? Does that make sense? It does. And I think the indicators also leads in well um, of course, my whole shtick is, is we, we don't consider enough the indicators that are directly quantifiable with data. And you put in your next point about breaking from the normal. Um, we'll go in a little bit deeper later, but no data exploitation, no, no internal audit. Um, you're singing my song there, Dan. I, I, th I think data is important. I grew up in credit risk management, so we use data a lot. And we did <laughs> portfolio analysis of, of what caused portfolio uh, problems, and we used a predictable. I, I, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was started my career at Citi, and I, I got into credit risk management, and I had to do a risk review in credit risk management. And so I went out and looked at the bank in Arizona, and I came back. I wrote this nice report, and part of it was a section on indicators and what the indicators told me. So I wrote this and I went to my boss on, it was like a, a Friday morning, uh, Friday afternoon. I put the report on his desk and I, being the arrogant person I am, I said, Fred, this is the best report you're ever going to see. I worked hard on this. You're not going to find one problem. He said, good. I'll look at it over the weekend. We'll meet on Monday morning. So I go in Monday morning. I'm kind of strutting in. I go, yeah, this is going to take all of five minutes. Took us like five hours and we got through the first paragraph of the analysis. And he, he lambasted my analysis. And it was to the point where he said, Dan, 
I'm not sure that you and I are on the same page and we probably ought to get on the same page if you have any idea that you want to be successful in this. And what I had done is I had <laughs> taken data and I had just put it into a paragraph and I said, this is what the numbers are telling us. And that wasn't what the numbers were telling us. And he asked me, he said, did you bother to even talk to the portfolio manager and see what his opinion of the numbers were? I said, no, uh, because I can see the numbers. And I had all these excuses. He taught me a lot and I learned a lot. Numbers by themselves don't tell you something. It's what experts can tell you about those numbers. And the other lesson he taught me was that friends tell you a lot more than static numbers. And that's why if you look at trends and you look at the aggregate of four, five, or six indicators instead of one indicator, and you don't overreact to one indicator, you get a more holistic approach in your own thought process and you find out why data is so important. The problem I've had with auditors in my own teams and in people I've talked to since I've left corporate America is they look at one or two data elements and that drives their thinking. And they react to it emotionally, like it's they own it and it's, oh my God, look at this. And it's not an oh my God moment. It's a, oh, this is interesting. What else can you tell me? What other indicators are there out there that might add some flavor to the stew that we're making? And once you start looking at the whole picture, two things occur. You have a better understanding of what's occurring in your business and in the, in the marketplace, probably. And two, you add a more holistic executive perspective to your commentary. So you can actually add value to what you recommend to get resolved versus just criticizing somebody be based on a one-dimensional analysis. And that's what data gives you if you utilize it properly. Unfortunately, most people don't utilize it properly. Yeah, I think that's what well, utilize it properly or utilize it at all. Um, but utilize it at all or use it as a as a way to prove what they've already decided should be yeah. the should be the outcome. I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about the importance having come from credit risk. So I I think it's a really important point because if I were to be in charge of credit risk in a particular portfolio of loans for any bank in the world and I hadn't done some fairly thorough scenario analysis and things like that, that I think far too many auditors consider to be overly complex or outside the skill set of internal uh, analysis or internal audit, some of those sorts of things, I wouldn't be a credit risk manager for very long. Picking high, medium, low uh, based off of some, uh, some subjective assessment of risk in a credit portfolio wouldn't fly at all. Whereas, of course, credit risk in large and complex organizations is done based on all kinds of data, internal data, external data. I, I suppose my question is there, why, and to some extent, internal audit in banking may have some um, oversight of that, but outside of internal audit specifically in banking or insurance, why aren't those kind of techniques a bigger part of what we do? And shouldn't those same kinds of techniques like scenario analysis or multivariant outcomes and all these sorts of things, couldn't those be applied to many of the areas of risk that we look at, not just something as theoretically quantifiable as, as credit? You know, it's interesting you ask that question. And before I, I, when I was in financial services, I would tell you no, because we're the best and we're the ones who know how to do all this stuff. 
But when I went to GE Capital, and, and as you know, Dan, GE is a manufacturing company, not a financial company. GE Capital was the financial arm of They had healthcare, they had solar, they build diesel engines, they have technology building, uh, gas and exploration. They do a lot of different stuff. And we audited all that stuff. And you know, everything we did in financial services was transferable. It was transferable to the other industries, especially to the highly regulated industries like healthcare is regulated. There's things that you can do from a risk management perspective that are very linked to uh, financial services. But even in industries like solar, jet engines, diesel engines, the risk, it, it all gets down to defining what the risk looks like to your organization. Once you've defined what the risk looks like to your organization, you can determine what the indicators are that will tell you that that risk is either out of hand or in hand. And that's the steps that aren't often taken. One of the things that we did at GE Capital, we actually had a couple of our directors have industry meetings where they invited auditors from JCPenney's, from manufacturer Hanover's, the bank, and then they had someone from Monsanto, and they had someone from another energy company. They'd all sit together, and they were risk managers and auditors, and they'd create an industry risk assessment, and they'd start talking about what are the risks that impact our industries from all different perspectives, because financial perspective is one perspective. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's an important one, because everybody needs to know where the money comes from and where it goes. But it's not everything. There's other perspectives out there. My biggest challenge in financial services was convincing management that other risk besides finance, financial risk, was important. Yeah, uh, they yeah. got the credit piece. Sometimes they and they got the compliance because of the regulators. But the operational piece was a real battle with them as to what is operational risk and why is it important for you. And that's what I would say to all the industries out there operational risk is an area where everybody has operations and the risks are very, very similar because they tend to be process driven. You can easily have transferable uh, share. And I would say reach out. I told my, uh, my auditors all the time, reach out to other industries. If you want to understand what risk is really about, find out how other people deal with the same risk you're dealing with. And you may have some best practices which you can transfer. And we did that at GE Capital. And it worked out really, really well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, also probably leads into the last, the fifth point that you'd given in, in the new normal of, of internal audit. Um, and this one is a big one for me too. You touched on it when we were talking about the three lines of defense, but I want to re-emphasize it. Independence, not isolation. What did you mean by that? You know, I, I've struggled and I, I wrote a book about this and, and it's, there's a chapter in there. I struggle with that because everybody has always told me when I got into audit, you have, you're independent, you can't be part of the business. And as I got into it and I really studied it, independence actually is the ability to make decisions on your own base of knowledge. That's what independence to me is, is you can make a decision that you make without undue influence from anybody else. The best way to not have influence from any single person is to have knowledge from many, many people. So the more I understood about the business that I was working with, the more I got to know management and how they did things and why they did things, the more I engaged myself with what they were doing up front and felt camaraderie with them, 
the better able I was to make a decision independent of all of that because I had many more perspectives to use to kind of balance my own and give me additional insights. That's what auditors tend to lose sight of when they are overly independent. I can't go to parties with the business because that impacts my independence. I can't uh, be engaged in designing a process because I'm going to have to audit it later that impacts my independence. I can't review a policy because I'm not supposed to write policies. I can't help design an indicator list because I'm going to audit the indicators <sighs> later. These All are the of, things that just make me crazy. They, they, they drive, drove me up a wall. And, <laughs> and ultimately, I drove my team up a wall because I never allowed that to happen. Uh, and they really didn't like it until they got into it for a while. If we could get beyond that and realize that we can help our business, and that's what I like about the new three line of defense, getting us there a little bit closer, we can actually encourage people to establish the right controls in the right places by being in the first line of defense and in the second line of defense and not coming in and attacking them or criticizing afterwards. I have a new saying. My new saying is, you can't be a trusted advisor if all you do is criticize. Advice is not criticism. Advice is different. If you want to criticize, be an independent auditor, come in at the end, be the policeman and say, shame on you. You did it all wrong. Advice. And no is problem with that. That's a great career choice and that's needed yep. in the world, but I don't think it's the role of internal audit. <laughs> I agree with you. It's not the role that we should have. And it's certainly not the role in the new normal. If we want to be relevant and survive, the new role is what can I do? Let me give you some advice based on my experience on why putting that control in this part of the process may not be your best option. That's what you do. It's all how you communicate to people and you don't tell them you have to do it this way. But let me explain to you why it might work better. For example, if you put brakes in a car, it might help you stop the car. But you don't have to put brakes there because if you don't want to stop, don't put them in. That's all right. I'm saying. I gave a talk a while back with a, a, a big education institution. Well, it was with, um, with an Ivy League university. And um, they had some, they'd had some struggles initially in their program. They'd built a really powerful program using data to help uh, monitor all kinds of things throughout the business and, and drive much more, um, much more rapid assurance and these sorts of things. And, you know, they, they realized we're struggling with the adoption and recognition of the value of this program. And what's the reason? Because the program is bad? No, because what do we call it? The continuous monitoring program. Who in the business do you think wants to be continuously monitored by somebody called internal audit? Unshocking that you didn't get a, a huge amount. of. <laughs> Ironically, they don't change a thing about the program and they change the name from continuous monitoring to timely assurance. Uh -huh. Boy, isn't it nice to have brakes in the car if the car needs to stop? Yep. And, and suddenly it became this, this very high va highly valued program. And, you know, over time, management begins to pick it up and take over pieces of it themselves and all of these sorts of things because of, you know, exactly that, where, where the difference between criticizer and, and trusted advisor. I think that leads in well, Dan. I, I want to talk about if those are all the, the reasons for departure. Uh, I love you have floated a new model uh, in, our, in our webinar. You called it the time for us to all get a grip, um, GRIP being an acronym, G-R-I-P for governance, response, intelligence, and profiling. Can you just summarize quickly what the get a grip model is 
and then we'll just quickly touch on each of the the four components. Yeah, the the grip model is something I came up with when I started looking at how how is audit going to maintain relevance over the long term, and we can do a lot of things to be current, but maybe not relevant. And I think relevance ends up being something different. It's something that gets to the heart and soul of what an organization is. And so GRIP really is kind of putting a lot of different things together that I garnered from a lot of other people much smarter than I am. And when we, we talk about it, it has a governance uh, section, it has a response section, an intelligence section, and a profiling section. It starts getting into how people do what they do and why they do what they do. Audit typically historically has been, what is it that they do? And they try to find out where in the process there's some weaknesses, but it's not always a process weakness. Sometimes it's a mental weakness or it's a design flaw. And auditors aren't very good at design flaws from a mental perspective. They're great at design flaws from a, a org chart or from a process flow chart or from a design chart, but not from a mental why did people do something the way they did it? And so the GRIP model helps us get to that. And so as we talk about each of those components, we'll start seeing exactly what that means and how it looks. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk about the G in, in uh, GRIP is for, is for governance. And I, I particularly liked how you talk about it in three parts, um, kind of like government, creating the law, enacting and educating and and confirming compliance. Let's start there. Talk about governance and, and how you think about it in the new normal. The, the governance is always, I mean, when we started this as auditors a while back, we looked at management and we asked how, manage, how, how people manage their business. And we never linked things together. And I'm all about linking things. For some reason, I have been blessed with an opportunity to look at processes and I can see how they're linked together fairly easy. And that's been a curse and it's also been a blessing. Governance is that way. And if I was an auditor, I always wondered what, what management, man, managers manage things a certain way and leaders lead. What's the difference between management and leadership? Same thing's the difference between management and governance. Governance is a complete process. And so when people started talking about governance in business, they looked at policies and procedures. And that was that. And I said, no, 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 no. That's not, that's policies and procedures. That's not governance. Governance is a holistic approach. To govern something means you need to do certain things. And those three components are you create the law, you enact the law, you then enforce the law and, and in, ensure that the law is being followed. That's what governance is. How does that translate to an organization? Well, it's exactly the same thing. It's very simple. They create the law, i.e. policies and procedures. They educate the law and enact it through training and education and management processes, including infrastructure and systems. And then they confirm that it's working through either internal controls or external controls, and then they modify it. If auditors are going to look at governance on the go forward, they have to look at the whole process, and they have to see how rules and policies are created and what goes through there. One of the good examples I would give, Dan, is that when management makes a decision, a strategic decision to do something, the first question I, I ask and what I want to look at is the arguments that they listen to against the decision. 
I want to understand why they chose what they chose versus something else. And if there is no argument against the decision, I criticize their decision making because they didn't take a broad enough scope and have a good negative argument to counterbalance what they wanted to do. So they had a bunch of yes people telling them, great idea, let's go for it, versus people standing up and saying, this is what it could have a problem. This is where we may have a shortfall, et cetera, et cetera. If they don't go through that, I criticize it. No other auditors would ever criticize that. I did. And so it's that kind of philosophy looking at governance is how do people govern? How do they make the decisions they make as an organization will tell you a whole lot about the organization as a whole, which seldom does, do auditors actually get into. And I think they should. Yeah, understanding the organization as a whole. That's really um, important. And I especially like, though, moving on one step to the R. I think there are organizations, there's some organizations that are good at risk management and, and risk prediction, that sort of thing. There's organizations who are really good at risk response, though. And my experience is, is I, I love that you put the, the R in grip is for response. The organizations I've been involved with, those that are great are risk response, tend to be highly coordinated with those that would be broadly uh, looked upon as being great organizations. So maybe let's move on to response and talk about why you put response in the, in the grip model. And also, I think this is an important, a particularly important one given the given the risk events that we are just working to come out of now. Yeah, it is interesting. I had an epiphany a couple of years ago. I was talking with the executive in charge of technology and operations for our institution, and we we're talking about fraud indicators. And he, we were having lunch, and he says, you know, and he had an epiphany, which he shared with me, which caused me to have an epiphany. Uh, he said, there's always going to be fraud. And the difference between us and any other institution is how quickly we can recognize it and respond to it. And I took that and I, I had never heard it said that way, just very concisely, very simple. And I, I was always grown up in, we've got to predict what fraud's going to happen. We have all these indicators and blah, 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 blah. And I realized- Of course, we have to prevent fraud. Dan. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and I realized that you're not going to prevent fraud. You're going to prevent yes. some of it, absolutely, right. but you're not, you're not going to prevent it all the time. But the difference maker is how quickly we respond. And then with COVID, it was really, really interesting to me how people responded to the, to the virus itself and to what was being said and how we're still responding. Some people still don't get it. Uh, but I read an article about these two members of the U.S. military in Italy and how they had a different response than everybody else at that point in time in Italy. And what they had done is they had gathered a lot of information and these two generals, one was an admiral and one was a general, if I remember correctly. And it was a small article in the paper. It wasn't a big article, small article, which tells you something. But anyway, I read the article and both of these guys, the admiral quarantined all of his people. When Italy started having the problems, they stayed on the ship. And the general kept everybody on base. He wouldn't let them go downtown except to pharmacies and to doctor's appointments. They did some other steps as well to prevent a serious crisis that was happening throughout Italy to happen to the ship and to this base in Italy. And they actually managed it really, really well because they responded quickly. 
And that just kind of confirmed in my mind, the companies that are going to do well are going to be able to recognize an event and respond to it quickly. And that gets it back into the governance piece. If governance has a response mechanism of how you respond to things, you're going to be really, really, really good at taking advantage of the marketplace to your competitor's disadvantage because you've responded well. So it's all greed for me. I want to be the best company <laughs> yeah. out there. I want to make lots of money. I better be able to respond to crises very, very well. And that means I have to have a crisis response methodology that can be implemented immediately like this general and this admiral did almost immediately in Italy. And what you just described there, though, having a, a response methodology or having actually, whether it's a, a pandemic response plan or it's a competitive intelligence team or whatever it yep. is, um, that to me sounds like now something that can be audited is absolutely perhaps always as opposed to, you know, we're always so focused on what are the processes and controls? When was the last time we audited um, the, the nature of our ability to respond? I would agree with that. I mean, we audit business continuity and business uh, resumption. Why can't you audit and why don't we audit a crisis response process? That's what we should be looking at. That's where we're going to add some value because if we can help our business be the first one to respond to a crisis, can you imagine the value, intrinsic value to the company that that has? It's just amazing. We don't do that as auditors. And I don't right. know why we're very capable of doing that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And perhaps among some of the, if we were thinking the right way, perhaps amongst the most capable in the organization to do so. Agreed. So let's then move on to the I. The I is for intelligence. Again, of course, unshocking given I work for Galvanize. Um, but <laughs> this one is, is home base for me. What are you thinking about when you say a uh, big part of the new normal is intelligence? Intelligence to me is more than just the data. Uh, and, and I love Galvanize because they have so many tools that allows us to slice, dice, and ga gather data and look at it a hundred different ways. Intelligence to me is understanding what the data tells you. And the reason I like Galvanize is because it has so many ways to look at it and you have to look at data differently. You have to look at it from two or three or four or five different perspectives because the number itself tells you something. It's like when you told me about the 800 uh, clients and 225 and then 400, it told me something, but it doesn't tell me the whole something right. because I don't have other data that would enrich in my analysis of what that is coming from my credit risk background. So the more data I have and the way that I can look at it and the perspectives that it gives me, that leads to intelligence. Intelligence being how do I look at data in a very holistic way that gives me the most intuitive understanding of what that data is telling me. And there's a number of tools out there that we use to, to get there. Uh, trend analysis, uh, slicing and dicing the, the data in a hundred different ways, exception management processing, looking at data that way. The application of data to process touch points is something that needs to be considered. Uh, the data integrity has to be considered there as well. All of that lends itself to an ability to intelligently understand what you're seeing when you're seeing it and interpreting it one, two or three different ways. And the reason I always interpreted my data two or three different ways and shared with management the three ways that it could be interpreted is because I wanted them to know I wasn't sold on one way until I got to the very end. 
And when I made a recommendation, it was because I had looked three or four alternatives, and this was the best alternative from my humble perspective that they should consider, although they were open to consider whatever they want. That's great. And I think you did a particularly good job there of sort of capturing there's, there's multiple tools and multiple approaches to looking at data. One is evaluation and mining and digging. Um, another is monitoring and, and, and capturing. And I think you also call, um, particularly when you're talking about credit risk earlier, a good job of separating out different types of data. I think auditors tend to be quite good at, or, or at least better at using internal data. So there's things like if I'm worried about financial controls, I know to go look in the financial system and look at the transactions and see what happened. What I think we tend to not be as good at is um, looking for data outside. So, so an obvious example is in credit risk. One of the things you got on every loan was a credit risk score from outside the bank. Um, but so many of the things we look at, there could be external data as well. And I think in particular, the pandemic is a good example of that. There's an awful lot of data available about case rates, geographic differences in, in spread, all of, these, all of these sorts of things where somebody with the right kind of a, a approach and mindset, like an internal auditor, if they're just using the external data, that's pretty simple. We all see it on the news, but mm-hmm. correlate that with our own operation. There's so much more we could be seeing, so much more we could be seeing quickly in thinking about accelerating the risk response we talked about earlier. Yeah, I think you guys have ruined my life. I just want you to know that because now when I see data out there, like with the COVID, I'm now questioning where the hell all this data comes from and how they got to that conclusion and why it does it have integrity and are they looking at it the right way because of your training classes, which asked me those very questions was, am I looking at data the right way? Uh, Do I have all of the numbers? Do I have what I need to be looking at? Did I ask for the right stuff to begin with? So having that questionable mind is really good. And let me give you a real quick example of real of something that happened to us. We were auditing a credit card business in Mexico and they were talking about delinquency and they had just gone down market from an AB credit quality to a CD credit quality. Mm -hmm. So they were projecting delinquency was going to go up to about six or 7%. So we did a portfolio analysis similar to what their credit risk review officer had done. And we came to a different conclusion than they did. And so what we had done is we had taken a delinquency uh, history by, and I can't, you know, I, it escapes me what we call it, but I'll, I'll come up by the end of the, our podcast. But anyway, we looked at it by quarter and we saw that what was driving delinquency wasn't the new stuff they were booking that was down market. It was actually two-year-old portfolio that was going south. Mm. And so when we analyzed that, they had not picked up on that because they had assumed the increase in delinquency was the new C and D credit quality people not paying their bills. And yes, it was higher, but that wasn't the driver. So when we spread all the numbers and we looked at it and we talked, took that to the credit manager, she kind of disallowed it. She said, no, that's not. Yeah, I see the numbers, but that's not really what it's telling me. So I said, fine, it's not telling you. You can explain to your boss why, because I'm going to explain to our boss why this is an issue and to your boss why it's an issue. So we explained it to her boss. 
she could not explain her point to her boss because he was pretty smart. He knew numbers. Ultimately, she lost her job, which wasn't the purpose mm. of this. But it just shows you the importance of looking at data and seeing what it really tells you versus what you think it's telling you. She had sold herself and her team on, we're going to go down market. So our delinquency of four or 5% is going to get to 7% because of this. Actually, we told them that the delinquency was going to be over 9%. You're going to have increase in losses. And that's coupling your down market with this portfolio tranche that was performing so badly. And you don't know why. And that's exactly what happened. And it's a, a perfect example of learning from data versus trying to use it to prove a story that you've already decided on. And I like that phrase, Dan, learning from data. I may use that in future uh, <laughs> writing or something. Learning from data is the key. It's not yeah. using it. Don't be like an attorney to build your case. Let the data be like a CSI investigator. Exactly. Let the data yeah. tell you where it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I always tell auditors, hey, when it comes time to prove compliance, you can think like a defense attorney. Otherwise, you don't get to think like a defense attorney. You're, you're, a, you're, a, uh, you're the investigator. I think that's a, a, a great point to, to wrap up with the key in Get a Grip, Dan. You touched on profiling earlier, but in particular, I think taking everything we've talked about and wrapping it up in this idea of, of profiling and linking that to the strategic plan, um, I think makes your, your grip model really compelling. Maybe talk a little bit about profiling in the broader context of the, the strategic plan. Yeah, profiling to me comes from a corporate psychology and it's really understanding the motivation of why organizations do what they do. And organizations are not a living thing. Organizations live because of the people who manage them. So you need to understand how and how people do things. But more importantly, we need to understand why. Why did Enron shred all the information? You know, it, that would be good to know. But you could have known that before they shredded it. And mm -hmm. you could have known that because people don't do something under crisis that they don't normally do. They just do it to a higher degree. So if you start <laughs> applying psych psychology to what we do in audit, and we, don't, we aren't psychologists, and I don't mean to imply that, but there's rules of psychology, and it really it is, what is the motivation of our organization management team to do what they do? Why did they pick a strategy that they wanted to pick? And because there's a process, a decision-making process, auditors can audit the process. And that's why you have to understand the decision-making process, which is very hard for some auditors to really get their hands around when we talk about profiling. All it is is the process that people go through to make a decision. And it would be like when you buy a car, what decision do you go through? First of all, I have a brand name that I kind of like, and there's reasons why I like it. So I'm going to look at that plus two or three others. Price is a differentiator for me. Benefits are the the uh, additional perks on the car. There's a reasoning process I go through when I make a decision to purchase a car. There's a reasoning decision when people make a strategy. And we should be able to audit that decision-making process and provide input. And I mentioned to, uh, earlier about people not taking, having a good argument against the decision. In my model of decision-making auditing, I look at who argued against this and how good was their argument against it? Because if you don't have a really good argument against it, you're not going to make a good decision. 
you have to have a strong argument against your decision to have confidence that your decision is right. And that's something that the board should be asking, not auditors. But since the boards don't ask that, auditors should. And that's what profiling is all about. Why do people do what they do? And that really tells you an awful lot about the success of a company. And did that ever, I'm just curious if that ever, if, if it was something that you had trained at all, um, auditors to use. And I like that, like what's the best argument against? I'm curious if it's something you trained to use at all. And if so, any interesting stories or outcomes of what result you were able to, to drive from that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a good example. And it's a fun example because it had a very positive result for all of us. The, the training that I, I gave auditors is the process because auditors are process oriented and that's what they look at. And we're very good. Uh, in fact, I would say we're exceptional at being able to dissect processes and really f- find out what functions and what doesn't function. We can do that really, really well. I was in Columbia and we were looking at an organization that did pension funds and they had a lot of customers that had U.S. dollars and the pension fund business was bought by Citigroup, obviously out of New York. Well, at the time in Columbia, they had a investment tools for people to invest their money and they would get X percentage. I don't remember the percentage of interest, but they get X percentage of interest. Well, Citibank in New York actually had a time deposit at that time that was paying much more interest than what Colombians could get in Colombia. Mm. So the management team decided in the pension fund for their good customers that they were going to take their investments and put them in time deposits in New York because their clients would make more money and New York was insured. It was good. So there was a lot of positives to it. They even got an attorney's clients uh, uh, or an attorney to give them kind of a blessing on it. So when we went in and looked at it on the surface, it looked like this is a great decision. The motivation was right. The decision was right. Clients were making more money, et cetera, et cetera. They had one small problem. There was a law in Colombia that prohibited them from taking money out of Colombia, investing it in a foreign country. And New York was a foreign country. And so when I talked to Umberto, who was the president, I said, you know, I'm going to have to write this up. And the only question I would have, you did all the right stuff. You got the attorney to agree with you. You did the right thing for your clients. They're making more money. You're invested in dollars, which is good because of volatility. Did you bother to talk to the regulators to see if they would bless this before you ever did it? Because your attorney should have told you you had a law. You can't do it. He said, no, we didn't do that because they'd probably say no. I said, okay, I understand why you didn't do it. I said, so what they're going to do now is they're going to penalize you a couple million dollars and you're going to have to stop doing that. He said, yeah, I know. And so we wrote it up and I get a phone call about six or seven months later. I'm in another place. He said, Dan, Umberto, $2 million. I go, oh, that's the thing. Okay. So we all knew it. Uh, But if we hadn't looked at it from that process, decision-making process, we probably would have ignored it and just gone that. Because an auditor would say, oh, that's a good decision. Clients were well protected. The money was well protected. Certainly made sense. But we went a little bit further. We looked at the decision-making process, and the only step they missed was running it by the regulators before they did it. And they should have yeah. done it. Yeah. Well, that is a great story. That's great to round out the um, GRIP model. Dan, this was really great. Um, we're going to follow it up with a, with one more part with some Q&A, but I think this was really fantastic. Anything else we missed before we wrap up? I think we, I think we, we hit everything, Dan. I, I, 
I'm really pleased and encouraged by what auditors are doing today. And we've come a long way. We've still got a long ways to go, but there's a lot of progressives out there that are doing wonderful jobs. And I've met them at some of your, uh, the conventions with Galvanize and other industry. There's some really progressive thinkers. So kudos to all of you out there, uh, all of the auditors who are making a difference. Keep doing it. It's a great career. It's a great industry. It's something that's very valuable and very needed. Outstanding. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us for this week's Office Hours. Make sure to visit wegalvanize.com for free resources to help you deliver better enterprise governance. See you next time.